Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear about the Colorado River Drought Task Force and the Colorado River Compact. In reality, Colorado's done a better job than Arizona and California in investing in conservation and smart storage and using our water to its maximum benefit. Nourishing waters, comforting skies. That's an award-winning book about Nebraska's sandhills from a Colorado naturalist. I rose an hour before sunrise, walked over to my quiet spot in the woods, and sat there meditating as the pink glow of false dawn tinted the eastern sky. The Mountain Gazette celebrates a milestone. The roots of of this magazine are are heavily in Colorado, was founded in Colorado. And for Native American Heritage Month, we'll hear about the Jingle Dress Project. My dream is telling me that I need to take the Jingle Dress to the land. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. The deadline is approaching for the Colorado River Drought Task Force to submit recommendations for state-level policy solutions to tackle the ongoing water crisis in the state. The task force is a result of legislation that was passed at the Colorado Legislature this year. Dylan Roberts of Eagle County, who represents Colorado's 8th Senate District, co-sponsored the bill. He spoke with Steve Peters on KFFR. The Colorado River is so important to um, our livelihoods, to our economies and and to our way of life. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, because of drought, because of climate change, because of overuse uh, downriver, the Colorado River as a whole is uh, under threat right now. And I think there are ways uh, that we can uh, craft public policy both here in Colorado and throughout the many states that the Colorado River touches to protect the long-term future of the river and and all those who depend on it. So that was the idea of the Colorado River Drought Task Force is is we need to take this seriously. We need to be proactive about how we're uh, making policy for the future of the Colorado River. But also, let's not rush into anything that could cause negative or unintended consequences for either residents or for agriculture um, or for our communities. And so, um, I, you know, we thought a task force was the best way to go about that. So it was a bipartisan effort. And uh, what it did is it established this task force that's made up of 17 people, some of the best and brightest minds in water that represent a variety of industries. You know, we have folks in agriculture, folks from outdoor recreation, environmentally minded folks, uh, people who work in industrial power production that rely on water, uh, and then water providers like uh, people from Northern Water that's certainly important to Grand County. Um, who have been meeting over the course of this summer and into this fall, and they'll meet until December of this year, to have those really hard conversations about what policies could we put in place regarding storage, uh, conservation, uh, incentives for farmers to use less water, or incentives for municipal uh, water providers to conserve more, and prepare a report that they have to prepare by the end of December, And then that report will go back to us at the legislature and we'll get to use their well-crafted and uh, well-debated work to inform um, how we might pursue policy in the years ahead. Without 
the all the complications of the Colorado River Compact at this time, do you think you would have appointed such a task force? Well, the the Colorado River Compact uh, that you brought up is certainly the the underlying uh, force amongst all these conversations on the Colorado River. Explain to our listeners what the compact is and who's in the upper basin, who's in the lower basin, and where the tension is uh, presenting itself. It's a great question. And, and having a fundamental, you know, at least basic understanding of the compact helps inform all of these conversations. So uh, the Colorado River Compact was a, a agreement amongst several states that uh, was finalized uh, over 100 years ago in 1922. So 101 years ago now. Um, the seven states that the Colorado River flows through, as well as uh, the United States government as a whole and the government of Mexico, because the Colorado River goes into the um, goes into Mexico before it flows into the ocean, uh, came together and agreed on allocation of water from the Colorado River. And it divided the seven states into two categories, upper basin states and lower basin states. Colorado is, of course, in the upper basin, where because this is where uh, Colorado River begins and its tributaries uh, begin in Wyoming and Colorado. So the upper basin states are Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah. And then the lower basin states, uh, and it's um, divided at Lee Ferry uh, in uh, along the Colorado River, and the lower basin states are Nevada, Arizona, and California. And so the compact back then, uh, and, and still in effect today, said that the upper basin can use 7.5 million acre feet a year, and the lower basin states can use 7.5 million acre feet combined a year. Um, the funny thing is, or the, or maybe the, the scary thing is, is in 1922, when those numbers were agreed upon, uh, the, in 21 and 22, that had been in a historically wet season. And so the amount of cut water in the Colorado River was way higher than it normally is. So there isn't actually normally uh, 15 million acre feet a year that flow flows through the Colorado River, but um, 7.5 on each side was what was decided. Uh, the upper basin historically never gets close to its use of uh, 7.5 million acre feet for a variety of reasons. The lower basin has, uh, especially recently, uh, pretty consistently overused their allocation. And so that's where the scary part comes in is there's an imbalance. Uh, there's an imbalance between overuse in the lower basin, underuse in the upper basin, and then add in drought and climate change, which means less water to begin with. And that's where you you get the fear that uh, the compact, and I don't think this can happen anytime soon, like in the next year, but it could happen sooner than we would hope, where the federal government has to step in and say, hey, this compact isn't working anymore. We got to do remeasurements here. California and Arizona, they've got way more people than you do, Colorado. They've got way more political power than you do. Uh, so let's let's re let's redo these numbers. And that could put Colorado in a really bad place. And so that's what we're trying to prevent. Should we think about it as though everyone in the upper basin is a giver and everybody in the lower basin is a taker? You know, I think our our friends or foes down in Arizona and California would not agree with that uh characterization, but uh, you know, if you wanted to put it simply, that that's probably a good way to put it. I think in in 
in reality, Colorado's done a better job than Arizona and California in investing in conservation and smart storage and uh, using our water to to um, its maximum benefit. But it's true we don't we don't use all of our fully allocated water and and um, so we have we are giving more to the lower basin right now. That was Colorado State Senator Dylan Roberts speaking about the Colorado River Drought Task Force with KFFR's Steve Peters. Find out more and hear the full conversation at kffr.org. The task force will be holding a series of meetings in Glenwood Springs, Durango and Denver before they deliver their final recommendations to the Colorado legislature by the end of this year. Boulder naturalist Steve Jones has just won a Nebraska Book Award for his book about the Sandhills. It's called Nourishing Waters, Comforting Skies. Fellow naturalist Ruth Carol Cushman goes with Steve to a favourite prairie spot in Boulder that reminds Steve of the Nebraska Sandhills. Here they sit by a wild creek while Steve reads an excerpt from his book. This is all part of KGNU's Nature Almanac, produced by Shelley Schlender. The great thing about writing about the Nebraska Sandhills is many of the elements are right here on Boulder Open Space. Mm. Nebraska Sandhills, this big blue stem would not be three feet high, right, Ruth Carroll? It would be at least up to my shoulders, yeah. And the switchgrass here, which is lovely, golden switchgrass, soft seeds would be six feet high as well. Instead, we're at Jefferson County Open Space south of Boulder on a perfect morning. So we're just going to walk down to the creek here. Oh, and there's water in the creek, a lot of water in the creek. It's making wonderful little rippling noises. Ruth Carroll, Shelley says you're supposed to interview me. Yeah. And I'm going to read it just to be sure I get everything I want to say. And Steve, you have so many accomplishments. I couldn't, you know, I didn't want the introduction to be too long. Well, we're partners. We shouldn't be actually (laughs) praising one another. Why not? Steve Jones has been a passionate voice for conservation all his life. He's an environmental consultant and breeding bird ecologist, and many of you know him because of his work with the local Audubon Society and with Boulder Teen Naturalists. I first met him in the 1980s when we wrote our first book together, The Short Grass Prairie. Since then, we've collaborated on several natural history books. Steve's latest book, Nourishing Waters, Comforting Sky won the 2023 Nebraska Book Award for nonfiction in the Nebraska as Place category. You know, when um, people from Boulder ask me why I spend most of my free time camping alone in the Nebraska Sandhills, they always say, is it your your Nebraska roots? Because I have very deep Nebraska roots. I had a great-great-grandparents who actually homesteaded in Nebraska. But I, I always tell my friends that has nothing to do with it. Because the Nebraska Sandhills is by far the largest remaining expanse of native mixed grass and tall grass prairie in North America. It's 20,000 square miles. And it's the quietest place I know. It's a place where you can spend days by yourself exploring the grasslands and thousands of ponds and lakes. The Oglala Aquifer is right on the surface there. So wherever you're standing, you're standing right on the aquifer. 
Anyway, I wrote this about one of my first days and nights at a state wildlife area in the western Sand Hills, which has become my home away from home. I think I've spent more than 300 nights camping, mostly by myself there. And now Steve will read an excerpt from that book. I rose an hour before sunrise, walked over to my quiet spot in the woods, and sat there meditating as the pink glow of false dawn tinted the eastern sky. Just as the silhouettes of the trees had begun to resolve in the gray light, a long-eared owl glided by, nearly brushing my face with her silent wings. Later I saw the white-tailed doe and her two fawns bounding through the cattail marsh at the north end of the lake, and flushed a small flock of sharp-tailed grouse in the adjacent dunes. I sat on one of the highest dune crests, soaking up the sun, while chattering flocks of red-winged blackbirds flared overhead. That evening I stood on the west shore of the lake as the sinking sun set the golden cottonwoods and burgundy-tinted prairie on fire. I heard a ripple in the blue, a rolling, pulsating call, and located a flock of several hundred sandhill cranes circling high overhead. The trumpeting intensified as the crane scrambled into ragged waves and sailed south. After sunset, the coyote families exchanged yips and the owls began vocalizing from all directions. I counted nine calling individuals, four great horned owls and two eastern screech owls along the lakeshore, and three squawking long ears behind my tent. I wandered up that way and lay down in the pine needles, gazing up at the indigo sky. An owl barked off to my left. I hooted twice very softly. The owl responded with shy barks and wails. I hooted again, and the owl wailed back. I wasn't sure what to make of this exchange, but every time I hooted, the owl responded, and we conversed in that manner until the cold night air settled in and the last daylight drained away from the woods. Suddenly, two of the owls hung overhead, fluttering like giant bats. I could just discern the silhouettes of their round heads twisting around to peer down at me as their wings flailed, struggling against gravity. I felt the heat of their eyes probing and questioning. They hovered there for a second or two, nearly within reach, then vanished. All the stars came out and the ponderosas began to shiver and sway. Steve Jones and Ruth Carol Cushman are naturalists based in Boulder. Steve's new book, Nourishing Waters, Comforting Skies, about the Nebraska Sandhills has just won a Nebraska Book Award. Thanks to Shelley Schlander at KGNU for that report. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. The Mountain Gazette is publishing its 200th issue this fall with a nod to the magazine's Colorado roots and a cover designed by an Aspen artist. The magazine was born in 1966 as the Skiers Gazette. Then it was reborn a few more times between breaks in publishing. The current editor, Mike Rogie, resurrected it in 2020 when he purchased what was left of the publication from the previous owner. On the bill of sale, he asked me to buy him a Coors Banquet beer. And so at 8.30 in the morning, I signed a contract. I bought a Coors Banquet beer and I was the new owner of a storage unit in Boulder, Colorado that contained 
the rights to publish Mountain Gazette. Now the magazine about mountain culture and outdoor adventure prints enough copies for more than 8,000 subscribers. Readers pay $70 a year plus shipping for two issues that almost look more like coffee table books and each edition sells out. There's no digital version. Aspen Public Radio's Kaya Williams spoke with Rogi from his office at Lake Tahoe about the revival and the history of the Mountain Gazette. You know, obviously January 2020, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, nothing in the world could ever throw me off my track. And of course, the pandemic hit. And that gave me a lot of opportunity to really dig into the past of the Gazette. And I spent several months here in Tahoe just kind of understanding the ethos. Like, what was this magazine about? A lot of people would ask me, like, why I didn't just start my own thing. And I'm a big believer of building on legacies, of building on foundations of reusing things that are already there. And from that, we, we launched our first issue back, uh, which was 194, the 194th issue of Mountain Gazette. To my surprise, we printed a thousand copies. And I remember telling my wife, we'll probably have 800 copies in our garage forever. We sold out in, in about 45 days. And the level of enthusiasm was great. It's the only time in my life where our readers, who are also obviously our customers, were like, not only did they want to buy the magazine, but they're like, how can I help? How can I bring this back? The enthusiasm was way beyond anything I could have ever imagined. And the magazine is growing. It's growing quickly. But more importantly, I think people are feeling that it's getting better, which is important to me. I'm really proud of what we've done so far. But I'd be lying like 200's only been out about a week and I'm already working on 201, the next issue, because it's just how my brain sort of works. Speaking of issue 200, the cover of this magazine is a Tom Benton piece. He was an artist who lived and worked in Aspen. The artwork itself is an Aspen leaf, and it actually came from Fat City Gallery, which is run by DJ Watkins in Aspen. So what was the decision process to put that particular piece on the cover? Mountain Gazette has become this unique community where a year ago for issue 198, I was writing about the band Goose, um, another popular band within Colorado. They just, I think they just sold out Red Rocks twice. And one of the guys there had worked at the Belly Up. I knew him from my powder days. And he said, man, I really think you got to meet my friend, DJ, who runs Fat City Gallery. And so, yeah, I follow those leads. And so DJ and I chatted and we decided we want to do a retrospective in 200 because Tom Benton did the second cover of Mountain Gazette ever. And he also did issue 36. And we just felt like this is a cool way for us to celebrate kind of some of the former contributors who are no longer with us. So in that process, we had asked if we could use uh, an image for the cover and we never heard back. So we moved on and we were like truly uploading our cover image to our printer when we got an email from Fat City Gallery saying, yeah, it's totally fine. So we canceled our upload, alarming our printer. It was a true like stop the presses moment. And I'll tell you like, you know, the roots of of this magazine are, are heavily in Colorado, was founded in Colorado, heavily influenced by Aspen, Colorado in particular. And, you know, the green background, the gold leaf, like I felt like that subtle tribute to Aspen, Colorado, where really the ethos and the heart and soul of this magazine was formed, felt important to me when as we celebrated this milestone. Can you speak a little bit more to those Aspen ties of the magazine? Sure. Yeah. I mean, 
Dick Dorworth did a lot of writing, former US ski team coach, uh, very good friend of Spider Savage back in the day. And for me, 1960s, 1970s Aspen is, uh, uh, you know, I'm very happy to be alive and living in this current present day. But if I could get in the DeLorean and go with Marty McFly back to the future, I'm pretty sure I'd want to pop into the late 60s. When I look at the the old issues of Skiers Gazette, which is what Mountain Gazette was initially before it switched in 72, I see a lot of the heart and soul of what our contributors care about today. I mean, you have the Sierra Club in there. You have calls from outdoor companies asking them not to drill in Alaska anymore. You've got the famous, like, you know, save Aspen or sell it you know, rename it to fat city. So tourists don't come. I mean, you could change a lot of the narratives from the sixties and seventies into today's like nomenclature. And I think, I think a lot of the ideas resonate Aspen, even though it's changed so much, you know, I've, I've been privileged in my career to travel to a lot of mountain towns. Um, Aspen's always been a bit left of center. It's always been its own place. You know, as much as people want to manufacture what Aspen is, I think the, you know, the value of Aspen doesn't lie in the stores on the main street. It lies in the community that's there. And, and, uh, that's an ethos that I've, I've definitely borrowed from the town of Aspen into, into what we're doing here at the Gazette. It's just, a, I think this is a, we can learn a lot from the past. And I think Aspen's really been good at doing that. And I'm trying to emulate that as well. Now it's worth noting this magazine is unique in the current landscape in that there's not a lot of online content at all. Tell me a bit about that conscious decision to not put any of this in a digital format in the way that so much else is super digital these days. I remember reading a piece about Jack White of the White Stripes starting a vinyl record label. And I remember at the time thinking that was kind of crazy, right? Because everything's about streaming right now and touring. And I think what was cool was he looked at the economics of it. And just said, look, I can uh, stream one of my songs 10 million times and make X amount of dollars. Or I can go into a studio and record an entirely unique album that's only available in vinyl and sell 10,000 copies and make 10 times the amount of money. And now what does 10 times the amount of money do? That doesn't mean like I'm here in Tahoe buying boats and flying on private planes. What it means is that we can invest more in our size, in the quality of our paper, in the quality of our content, in our contributors, in our contributor expenses, which, you know, as a journalist, you know, like having a budget to go pursue stories is, is really tough in this environment. So what I found is that if people were going to spend $80 a year on two magazines, I wanted them to feel like what they were getting was valuable. That for me is an economic model that I can get behind when it comes to journalism. The slogan of Mountain Gazette is, when in doubt, go higher. What does that mean to you? I think the original ethos of it was the idea of just like, if you're at sea level and things aren't working out for you, maybe move to a mountain town. <laughs> but for me, it's about stepping up your game and and trying just to do a little better every day. And I think if all of us were kind of working towards a better tomorrow, we can actually achieve it. And so it's kind of a big, grandiose thing for when in doubt, go higher, but it's something that I believe in for sure. It's something our whole staff believes in as well. That was Aspen Public Radio's Kaya Williams speaking with the editor of the Mountain Gazette, Mike Rogie. 
That story was produced with assistance from the Public Media Journalists Association Editor Corps, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Danae photographer and artist Eugene Tapahi shares about his Art Heals, the Jingle Dress Project, to bring awareness to Native American causes through the healing power of the traditional Ojibwe jingle dress dancers. Here is KRCL's Valine MC with more. I actually was the managing editor at the Naval Times newspaper from 95 to 2000. And I picked up the camera at my first time at um, the Naval Times in 1992 as a photojournalist. I am a self-taught photographer, and my, my project's called Art Heals, the Jingle Dress Project. We started this project back when COVID started, back in 2020, and it's been going since. We've actually had a lot of great response. We've been able to bring Native issues to the forefront, and not only during COVID, but even today, we're still pursuing our goal of healing and through art. So when when COVID first started, of course, we were all isolated and we were quarantined. One of my aunts, last matriarch in my family, she actually got COVID. About seven days later, she passed away from COVID. When I had a dream, I had a dream about me being in Yellowstone and I was sitting in, in tall grass and I was actually watching bison graze and the sun was setting. And so as I was dreaming, all of a sudden I heard jingles from jingle dresses and I saw like 20 to 30 women start dancing in the grass. They were dancing next to the bison and I felt this really peace and hope and this tranquility and I felt like my heart was healing from the stress that I was having and the fear that I was having during COVID. And so when I woke up, I shared my dream with the family. I just told them, I said, you know, I think my dream is telling me that I need to take the jingle dress to the land, and if we heal the land and the ancestors of those lands, that they're going to come and help us heal during COVID. And so that's what we decided to do. And I, I got my two daughters who are jingle dress dancers, and we got, you know, friends of our family to come and, and join us. We really wanted to do is just recreate the dream. And so we went and we did our first photo shoot and we had the girls dance out at the salt flats here in Utah. As a photographer, I wanted to document this moment. And we prayed and we had the blessings of the honor song. And when we actually danced it on the land, it was just such a spiritual moment. And the girls even said themselves that they felt like the ancestors of that land were dancing with them at the same time. And I was in tears after the dance was over because it was so spiritual. And one of my daughters said to me, she says, Dad, you know, we can't just do this once. We've got to take this across the land. And so that's when we started thinking about how do we do this. And so my idea was to go to state and national parks because those were colonized and taken from Native people first. And we believed that those ancestors needed to be blessed and healed first. And so that's what we did. And of course, the first real photo shoot, we call it a real photo shoot, <laughs> was at Yellowstone. And, and so we went to Yellowstone and that's how it started. That's Diné photographer and artist Eugene Tapahi with Valine MC of KRCL in Salt Lake City. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. 
Thanks to KFFR's Steve Peters, Aspen Public Radio's Kaya Williams, KGNU's Shelley Schlander and KRCL's Valin MC for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.